Welcome to the podcast from Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Redlands campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation and our world. I wonder this morning is if as you listen to Robin Liz, as you sit in this series, as you see these words on the screen, no one is beyond the reach of God, whether or not you truly believe it. I wonder if, as you sit here this morning, as you sit in this series and think about this idea of reach, whether you think, you know what, Robert and Liz are doing a great job, I'm going to pray for them, I'm going to resource them, I'm going to do all the things that I can because I believe in what they're doing. You know, you believe in what we're doing as a church, you believe in the community and care ministry, you believe in the gateway missionaries, you believe in campus planting, you believe in all of those things. But I wonder if... You are adding a few words to this sentence this morning. I wonder if there's a person or a couple or a family or a number of people in your world who you think are actually beyond the reach of God. They might be people that are really close to you. They might be family members. They might be people that you've been praying for for years. But you just cannot see how God is ever going to reach them. They are so far away from God right now. In fact, for some of you, you're not even allowed to mention Jesus in their presence because they'll get angry, they'll get opinionated, they'll get argumentative, and you're thinking, yeah, 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 no one's beyond the reach except dot, dot, dot. Maybe there's somebody that you've been praying for for many years, but you gave up on because you just cannot see how they are ever possibly going to make a decision for Jesus. If I'm not even allowed to talk about Jesus in their presence, how is God ever going to reach them? Do you have someone in your life like that? Are there people that you know, that you just think, I just can't see how this is ever possibly going to happen. I believe that God is powerful. I believe that he saves. I believe all of that. But for this person, they are just so far away from God that I just can't see it happening. Surely Jesus is going to return before this person makes a decision for Christ. Well, this morning I want to unpack a story in the book of Acts Actually, it's one of my favorite stories in the, in the whole of the New Testament, and it's powerful. And if, if, if you've been around church for a long time, you've probably delved into this story a couple of times over the years. But this morning, I want us to go there again and not miss the power of this story, because this moment in history changed the future. It's uh, had an impact that would see centuries change, generations change, culture change, and how we read the Bible today and experience the reach of God today change. It's up there, and scholars agree, um, as one of the most history-changing moments um, in, the, in the whole of the world, in the whole of history, with the resurrection of Jesus. It's a, it's a super powerful moment. So if you've got your Bibles with you, we're going to go straight there this morning um, in Acts chapter 8, where we meet... Um, a, a man who is going to change the history, the course of history and the course of the gospel forever. But he starts his story as someone who is so far beyond the reach of God. 
or seemingly so far beyond the reach of God. So Acts chapter 8, it begins in the book of eight, Acts, and let me set you up a little bit in the book of Acts. It's one of my favourite books in the whole Bible. Um, it's written by a guy named Luke, um, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke, big surprise there. And um, Acts is the story of the church as it began. So it begins um, after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, and then Jesus ascends to heaven. And he stands with, his, uh, with his, a handful of followers who've been with him through his whole years of ministry, and he says to them, guys, I'm going back to heaven now. You guys are the plan. I want you to take all that you've seen, all that you've understood, all that I've taught you, all that I've shown you, I want you to take it into the world and spread my message. Spread the message of Jesus. You guys are the plan, okay? He says, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit to be with you. I will be with you until the very end of the age. You have all the power that you have seen me possess on earth. Go and tell the world what you've seen and what you've understood. You guys are the plan now. And then he goes to heaven. And then these guys, these handful of guys that have followed Jesus around for the last couple of years, they go and do that. They act on what Jesus has said. They believe that Jesus is with them and they go. And on day one of the church, day one, 3,000 people put their faith in Jesus. 3,000 people put their faith in Jesus. And then those 3,000 people become like eyewitnesses to the message of Jesus. And they go and start sharing the story and the life-changing message of Jesus. And after a couple of weeks, these few followers who were on the beach with Jesus have become 5,000 people who have put their faith in Jesus and have become the early church, have become the very first Christians. And so this movement, this thing that is happening within Jerusalem becomes this big thing. Everyone's talking about it. Everyone knows someone who has seen the resurrected Jesus. Everybody knows someone who's become a part of this new thing that is sort of has Jesus at the forefront of it. And it's changing the culture. It's shifting uh, what's happening in the cities and the towns uh, that Jesus was in. And uh, it, it disrupts uh, the very delicate uh, balance of power between the two authorities at the time. So you've got the Roman um, authority, which they have legal occupation of Jerusalem at the time. So these guys are the law. And they had a very big part to play in the crucifixion of Jesus. These are the guys that lawfully put nails in the hands and feet of Jesus. And so as they see thousands of people before them start to rise up yelling the name of Jesus, they start to feel threatened. Then you've got the Jewish authority. So you've got the religious authority. And these guys had a big part to play in the crucifixion of Jesus as well. And they know that Jesus, when he was on earth, um, spoke out and preached against the Pharisees and the way that they were delivering religious law. And so they feel threatened as well. And so this very delicate sort of um, power balance Becomes, comes together and says, you know what, we've got a common enemy here. We need to stamp this Jesus thing out once and for all. And so they begin to persecute and bring uh, to under the law people who are belong to this new movement, people who are calling themselves Jesus followers, people who are calling uh, themselves the people of Jesus. And so they start to persecute. And while that's happening within the church, within the thousands of people that are swelling more and more every day, 
they, they, they decide they need some structure. They need some leadership. They need to sort of sort out what they're going to do and how they're going to do it. And so all of a sudden, some leaders rise up and some people uh, that are sort of in deacon roles or server roles and they're looking after, they're sort of taking the message of Jesus to look after the poor and the widows and the least of these and all of those sorts of people. And that's where we meet this guy named Stephen. And Stephen is sort of the very first, one of the very first deacons of the church, one of the very first leaders, and he's got a bit of a preaching gift. And he goes out and he starts to share the message of Jesus everywhere he goes. And more and more people are being added uh, to this number of swelling followers of Jesus. And Stephen becomes really well known. And so the authorities think if we can stamp out the influencer, if we can stamp out one of the leaders, then we could stamp out this whole thing. And so they they arrest Stephen, they put him under trial, and what they're looking for is for him to say, I will stop talking about Jesus, I will submit to the Jewish authority, I won't talk about Jesus anymore. Instead, by a move of the Holy Spirit, Stephen stands up and preaches this incredible message, this incredible gospel message. Um, And it's exactly what he shouldn't have said in that moment. And so they decide the best way to deal with this is to execute Stephen. And so they take him out of the city and they stone him to death. Stephen is one of the very first martyrs that we have for for the cause of Christ. And this is where we meet the hero of our story, at the stoning of Stephen. So in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it says this, And Saul approved of their killing him. So Saul, who is the character that we're going to meet over this story, he's going to make the biggest impact on the church He's going to make the biggest impact on the gospel uh, for centuries, generations, culture. We are still feeling the impact that Saul had. This guy, we are introduced to, the very first moment we meet him in Scripture, he is at the stoning of a Christian, and the Bible tells us he approved. He saw a leader of the faith. He saw a man who was full of courage, full of the Holy Spirit, stand up and preach the gospel, who is now experiencing a horrific execution, and the Bible says this history-changing man looked at that and was filled with approval. That's where we meet him. That's where we meet this guy. This guy approved of the killing of Stephen. Let's keep going. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. So something that Saul sees in the, pers- in, in the execution of Stephen uh, Im- impassions him to continue this persecution to the nth degree. Something that he witnesses in what happens to Stephen in that moment makes him feel threatened, makes him feel like this is something that we need to put a stop to, and he becomes the number one inquisitor, the number one persecutor, the number one guy who can find these Christians, drag them out of their homes, have them arrested, put on trial, and be killed. He becomes the guy. He becomes the guy who is known across the land as the number one persecutor, of people following Jesus. And Saul, for three years, puts on this full court persecution of the church. He continues to track Christians down, drag them out of their homes, where they were hiding, throw them into jail, have them um, 
put under trial, and many of these men and women were put to death. And he continues his persecution of the church, but he just can't catch a break. You see, and this is true throughout history, the more that Saul tried to persecute the church and stamp out the church, the more it spread. You see, Saul would kick over one anthill and the ants would scatter and start more anthills. And he'd kick over another anthill and the ants would scatter and start more anthills. He just could not get a handle on this. The more he persecuted, the more he pressed in and dragged men and women out, the further the message of Jesus would spread and more churches would pop up everywhere because people would run from him and start churches in their next place. You see, the message of Jesus was so impacting, was so incredible that a little bit of persecution from this murderous guy Saul was never going to stop the spread of the church in the first century. And this is true over and over and over again as the church has faced mass persecution. God's plan for his people has continued to move forward and become bigger and greater and more powerful. But Saul, after three years of unchecked persecution of the church, something incredible happens, something that can only be put down to Jesus. So in Acts chapter 9, it says this, verse 1, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Now, this is really interesting. Um, In my Bible, it says Saul was breathing out murderous threats. Um, And the original language would point more to um, Saul breathing in murderous threats, which professional Christians like me, we think about this stuff so that you don't have to. But um, people smarter than me have been arguing over whether it's in or out, and you're probably thinking it doesn't matter that much, and you're probably right. But the truth is, I think both the original language and the way it's been translated into English gives us this really good visual of where Saul is at in his journey, in his life, in his world. Because I think he's breathing in and out murderous threats against the people of Jesus. This has become his oxygen. This has become his life, his purpose, his passion. This is not just a vocation for Saul. This is his everything. He is consumed with this. This is his very breath is persecuting the church, stepping it, uh, stamping it out once and for all. He is breathing in and out these murderous threats towards the disciples of Jesus. This is not just something that he signed to say he will do. This is his entire life's purpose. He's a passionate guy. And this has become what gets him out of bed in the morning and what puts him to sleep at night stamping out the church, stamping out everyone who claims that Jesus is God. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest in verse 2 and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now, something else really cool in this passage is this little phrase, the way. At this point in history, Christians weren't called Christians. That kind of came a little bit later. And so when the earliest believers were sort of coming together and uh, and they needed something to call themselves, uh, they sort of, I don't know how it happened, but somebody had a meeting and they said, what should we call ourselves? And, um, And they went straight to Jesus and his teaching and how he described himself. And if you've read your Bible, you will know that Jesus talks about himself as the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
And apparently this was so integral to who Jesus was, this meant so much to the disciples about who Jesus was, that they decided that that's what they would call themselves. So before they were known as Christians, before we got the word church, they were known as the way. That's what the, mo- that's what the movement was called. And the reason I find this interesting is because I think we've lost a little bit of that connection to Jesus. You know, through terminology and through how we've moved through future, I think we've lost some connectedness to Jesus. You see, the earliest followers of Jesus, they saw themselves in partnership with Jesus. They saw themselves connected to who he is. And they called themselves the very same thing that he had called himself. They saw this connectedness in who they were as a church. And they called themselves the way. And I think we've lost that a little bit. We've sort of decided that Jesus is over here and we're sort of down here somewhere. But actually the earliest followers of Jesus saw themselves as connected, as the same. They were the way. Sort of interesting. Let's keep going. Verse 9. As he neared Damascus, that Saul, on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days Saul was blind and did not eat or drink anything. So here's Saul, the number one persecutor of the way, breathing in and out murderous threats against the people of Jesus. He finds out there's a whole bunch of them in Damascus. So he goes to the people of authority, the Jewish authority, and says, can you give me permission to go to Damascus, find all that belong to the way, drag them out of their homes and bring them here to trial. So he's on his road to Damascus with his bodyguards behind him, his scrolls of permission under his arms, and he's got his purpose, he's got his mission, he's got his passion on his mind. When all of a sudden, a huge flashing light stops him on his path. And it's not just a sort of a camera flash or a a lightning flash or the sun kind of in his eyes. This is something that makes him drop to the ground and be unable to see. There is no doubt of what's happening here. This is Jesus. And as he falls to the ground and this miraculous, powerful thing is happening in front of him, He says, who who are you? Because a voice has come from the light calling him by name. Saul, Saul, who are you? He says, it's Jesus. Why do you persecute me? Saul is faced with Jesus who's been killed, come back to life, and gone back to heaven, and is now in a form of light speaking to him on the road to Damascus. And he says, so why are you persecuting me? And again, we see this connectedness. It's not just the people who see a connection to Jesus. It's Jesus who sees a connection to his people. 
Jesus says, if you are persecuting them, then you are directly persecuting me. Everything you do to them, you do to me as well. And Saul realizes, this is Jesus. He realizes that these pesky Christians that he just cannot get a handle on, they're right. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Messiah. And he is faced with the previous three years, all in one moment, as he faces the truth, as he faces Jesus. He has to look back at the last three years. Everything he's done, everything he said, every man, woman, and child that he has dragged from their home, put in chains, and had killed. This guy has got to face some darkness. And so to help him along, Jesus makes him blind. He's not blind because the light was so blinding. He's blind because the darkness inside of him is so blinding. And he's faced with his past and his history and his sin and his darkness. And the guys behind him, they've heard it all happen, but they haven't seen anything. And so they have to pick him up and they have to walk him into Damascus. And there's a bit of poetry, there's a bit of twist in this story. Because Saul, who had expected to enter Damascus in the fullness of his pride and prowess as a self-confident opponent of Christ, ends up being led into Damascus humbled and blind, a captive of the very Christ he had opposed. There's sort of a nice twist in the story, isn't there? And there can be no misunderstanding what's happened here. There can be no misunderstanding. The risen Lord has appeared to Saul. It was not a subjective vision or a dream. It was an objective light. He saw the glory of Christ and heard the voice of Christ. Christ has interrupted his headlong career of persecution and has turned him around to face in the opposite direction. You see, Saul was one of those people who was so far in the opposite direction of God that people must have thought there is no hope for this man to ever be saved. And yet an encounter with Jesus turns him around to be closer to Jesus than anyone ever thought. There is no one beyond the reach of Jesus. There is no one beyond the reach of God's power to save. Saul of Tarsus has got to be the most unlikely person to be saved in the first century. You know, the modern day equivalent of this is probably like the head of ISIS. You know, we've stopped hearing about this in the media because it makes us feel a bit uncomfortable, but there are still, there are still extreme um, ISIS members who are rounding up Christians and beheading them, filming it and putting it on the internet. Imagine the guy who is ordering those executions. That is Saul of Tarsus. That is Saul. Is there anyone less likely to be turned around by Jesus than Saul of Tarsus? I, I, I can't see them in the first century. And yet Jesus 
turns up on the road to Damascus and says, no, 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 no one is beyond my reach. Everybody has a purpose from God, and I can save anybody. That's the message of Jesus. No one is beyond the reach of Jesus. But that's not the end of the story. You see, there is no one beyond the reach of God's power to save, and it is Jesus who saves. It is Jesus who died on the cross, rose again, and offers us salvation. It's not any of us here. That is all Jesus. But we are still the way. People of Jesus are still in partnership with him to see people go from salvation to discipleship. And Jesus shows us how he does that in the next part of the story. In verse 10, it says this. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Ah, Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. I think you've got the wrong guy, God. Saul of Tarsus? Yeah, I think you mean a different Saul. Because Saul of Tarsus, we all know who that is. He's the guy, he's come here to find me, Ananias says. This is the guy who has pulled people from their homes, people I know, people I have been friends with for many years, and I have not heard from them or seen them in years. You want me to go and find this Saul of Tarsus? Are you sure you got the right Saul? I love how Ananias answers God straight away. When, when God says to Ananias, Ananias, he says, yes, Lord, and then God says, I want you to go find Saul of Tarsus. And he goes, um, are you sure? I think that's fair. Can you imagine being Ananias? Can you imagine as he walks down straight street, no corners to hide in? <laughs> and he lands out the front of Judas's house with his hand about to knock. Inside this house, if God's right, is the man who's responsible for the death of my friends, is the number one persecutor of the way. If God's right, I could be walking into a trap here. But Ananias, he knows that he is in partnership with Jesus. When he says, I'm a part of the way, he knows that he is the way forward for Jesus. Now, could Jesus do this on his own? Of course he could. Could Jesus have stopped on the road of Damascus, bright lights, dropped Saul to the floor and said, now Saul, sit down, we're gonna have a chat about what the next few years means. I want you to do this, I want you to do this, I want you to do this. When I said this, I was telling the truth. And Jesus could have done it all. I mean, we believe in the power of God to do those things, right? And yet, 
when Jesus stood on the beach with a handful of disciples, he said, my church, this world, you guys are the plan. I want to partner with you to see those that are beyond the reach of God come to me as my children. Go, make disciples of the world. And Ananias, if he's breathing in and out anything, he's breathing in and out that message. He says, I am the way. I am the way. Jesus has saved him. And now it's my turn to knock on this door, walk in and tell Saul, God has a purpose for your life. And so he knocks and he walks in and he sees a broken man who's been confronted with his sin and his his darkness. And he sits down next to him and he places a hand on his brother. want you to know that God has a plan for your life. And the Bible says, as Ananias sat there with his hand on his brother Saul, something like scales fell from his eyes. And in that moment, with Ananias' hands on him praying, Saul steps onto the pages of history as the incredible, inspirational apostle we know as Paul. He will go on to write 13 books in the New Testament, one of the most quoted people in the history of literature. He will take the gospel to Galatia, Asia Minor, Europe, Macedonia, Greece and Rome. He will train up, encourage and mentor Silas, Barnabas, Timothy and inspire a young doctor named Luke to join his missionary efforts. Luke, who will document the story, the biography, the history of Paul and his missionary journeys and call it the book of Acts. He'll plant numerous churches, uncountable amounts of churches, become one of the most prominent preachers in the first century, which will lead him to being beaten, imprisoned, run out of town, shipwrecked, put under house arrest and eventually executed for his faith. After Jesus, Paul is probably the number one influencer of the Christian faith in existence. And he started as a persecutor of the way, breathing in and out murderous threats towards Jesus' people. He has a miraculous encounter with the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. And then he was led to Jesus in the life of discipleship by a man named Ananias. You see, Paul was a passionate man. God created him to be that passionate. You know, that that was something unique about him. He was passionate. He had this ability to breathe in and out his purpose. And with an encounter with Jesus, he changes what his very breath is. And his very breath becomes the extension of God's kingdom and the knowledge of the gospel throughout the world. He starts to breathe in and out the gospel. He starts to breathe in and out the love of Jesus. He starts to breathe in and out the spreading 
of the way. And we would not be sitting here today without the influence that Paul had on the world. And it came through an incredible encounter with Jesus that only Jesus can do, only Jesus can save. But it also came through a guy named Ananias, who, you know, Paul becomes this incredible, transformational, life-changing, world-changing hero of the faith. But the real hero in Acts chapter nine is a guy named Ananias, who every morning woke up and prayed, God, where do you want me to go? Who do you want me to reach? And one morning, God said, I want you to go see Saul from Tarsus. You see, he knew that he was the way. He was the in-between salvation and discipleship. He got Paul onto the road of understanding who Jesus was. He introduced him around. Hey, you remember this guy Saul from Tarsus? And everyone went, whoa. He said, it's okay, he's cool now. And he introduced him and he gave him opportunities to preach in the synagogue. He introduced him to the people who, who walk the closest with Jesus. And Paul would go on and have this education like no one else and understand who Jesus was because Ananias had the courage and the boldness to say, I am the way here. God has tasked me to be the way to see this unreachable man be the reach of Jesus in the world. Ananias is not insignificant in this story and you are not insignificant in the story of those in your life who are seemingly far from God. Ananias understood this connection between Jesus and his church. He understood the connection between Jesus and us. We are not mutually exclusive. We get lost in the power and the majesty and the kingship of Jesus. But Jesus stood on the beach with 11 ordinary guys and said, you are the way. You are the plan. I will be with you to the very end of the age. I will continue to turn up in people's lives in bright, shining light moments. But it's not all me. I wanna partner with you. I wanna see you become my reach in this world. And the same is true today. Jesus is calling you to be the way. Jesus is calling us as a church to become the way, to help people get from salvation to discipleship, to help people understand who Jesus is, to help people understand what Jesus is about in practical ways, in spiritual ways, in emotional ways, in all the ways that Jesus teaches. So as you think about those people in your life, as you think about those people in your world, friends, neighbours, family members who are far away from God, seemingly beyond the reach of Jesus. Let's believe together today that no one is beyond the reach of God. No one is beyond the reach of God. No one is beyond the reach of God's power to save. And let's believe that God is calling ordinary people like you and like me and like Ananias to be the hands and feet of Jesus to be courageous and faithful, to reach out 
Pray for and disciple those out of reach to have an encounter with Jesus and be led to become the people that God has called them to be. Would you stand with me? This morning, I wanna invite you, if uh, you're a believer in Jesus, uh, to hold out your hands like this. And I want you to take a moment with God to ask Him, what is it you want me to do to be the way, God? What is it you want me to do to be the way? Maybe there's a person or a face or a family or a couple that God has put on your heart. And I believe God is saying to you this morning that He'll do the salvation. Don't worry about that. But what is it that He wants you to do? How is it that He wants you to step out in courage, in faith and in boldness to be the plan, to be the way? Maybe you're here and you need to ask the question, God, how do I begin to breathe in and out your purposes for me? How do I become so impassioned by your purpose for me that that is what I am breathing in and out? Maybe you're here this morning and you need to face some of the darkness that's within you. And you need to ask God for grace to go deeper than it's ever gone before and for you to step into the purposes that He has for you. Just ask God right now, what is it, God, that I need to do to become the way? What is it, God? What am I holding back from? What is it I'm not listening to? Who is it, God, that I need to go and have a coffee with? Who is it that I need to put on my prayer list again? Whose door do I need to knock on? Whose shoulder do I need to put a hand on? What is it, God? I wonder if there's anyone here this morning who maybe you feel like you're far away from God. Maybe you knew God as a child or a young person and for whatever reason, life has got in the way. And this morning, maybe you've had a moment where Jesus has shown up and reminded you of who He is. Maybe for the first time, maybe for the first time after a long time. If you're here this morning and uh, you've never put your faith in Jesus before, maybe you're in the opposite direction to God right now and you just know this morning is that morning that you need to turn around and face Him and become a child of His, I wanna encourage you, I wanna give you an opportunity to become a part of the way this morning. So if you're here this morning and that's you, maybe you put your faith in God a long time ago and you were a Christian a long time ago, maybe you've never done that before, I wanna tell you today is the day. So if that's you this morning and you wanna put your faith in Jesus, I'm not gonna get you to do anything weird, I'm just gonna lead you through a really simple prayer that says to God, I'm yours. And so if that's you this morning, if you wanna put your faith in Jesus for the first time or the first time in a long time, I just want you to raise your hand while every eye is closed and every head is bowed in this place. If that's you this morning, you wanna put your faith in Jesus. 
You want to face your darkness and bring light into your world, feel the forgiveness of Jesus, feel the grace of God. If that's you, just put your hand up nice and high so I can see it. I can see the hand right at the back there. That is fantastic. Is there anybody else? That's great. I see that hand. That's awesome. Is there anybody else? Is there anybody else this morning? Oh, see that hand over there. That's awesome. Last opportunity. If that's you this morning, you just know, I need to to turn around. I need to be face to face with God this morning. God is ready for you. God is waiting for you. There are angels in heaven who are praying and clapping for you right now. If that's you, put your hand up nice and high in the sky. Okay, that's cool. I'm gonna pray for those couple of people. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna say some words. And if that was you this morning, you put your hand up in faith. I just want you to repeat the words after me in your own mind and your own heart. Dear Lord Jesus, I confess that I've been far away from you. There is sin and darkness in my life right now. And I'm sorry that I have turned away from your face. I ask for your forgiveness. I accept your grace. And now I am a Christian. I put my faith in you. I call myself a child of God and will follow you from this day until my last day. Amen. We hope you've been blessed by this message from Gateway Baptist Church. We're a growing family and everybody who walks through our doors is welcome. If you'd like to connect with us, please head to gatewaybaptist.com.au to find out more.